Welcome to A Brief History of Power. We are continuing with our Myth of America series by talking today about the colony that is most formative for what modern-day America looks like, maybe despite itself and certainly to many people's surprise, and that is New Amsterdam. We'll explain what that was and why it mattered. This is a solo episode, as you can probably tell, partly to move the series along and partly so that we're able to address listener questions as, as well as possible, and that's probably done better with the two of us. We're going to cover New Amsterdam, the capital of New Netherland today, in order to understand where we went from colonial times. We've talked about the Southeast and the Spanish attempts at colonization in what is now our Southeast and our Southwest, and summed those up in terms of the Presidio, the physical projection of force and the mission, the ideological projection of Christianity in those places. We've also talked about the covenant and the covenant people as the concept that dominated the settlement of New England. We've mentioned as well the settlement of Virginia and how that became perhaps our, our most reflectively English colony aping England's social structure for better or worse, not particularly working the farther west it went. The colony, though, that matters the most for and, and looks the most like modern-day America throughout these United States is, however, not one of the English colonies. And this irony is not because England is not our mother country imparting its language and its traditions and its common law and so many other things to modern-day America. It's because the shape of modern-day America is not dictated by the either religious or political considerations that informed either Virginia or New England. And that's going to sound a little strange until we get to the end of the episode because the sense of recognition is not going to be there at first as I'm talking about the fur trade and the Dutch language, and lots of other things that don't have a lot to do with modern-day America. When we think about the Presidio or the Covenant or any of these other concepts that we've brought up, we're thinking about generalizations that we're making from the history that we've learned or that we can also continue learning more about for ourselves. And those generalizations are very, very, very important because without them, we really can't profit from what we do know. So we're going to make one more generalization for the sake of colonial America. And that generalization is going to be there throughout this episode, but we're also going to keep using it because it is the genesis of the casino. We've talked about the casino for years now at this point, and it's the idea that modern American life does not have a single concept that dominates it except the getting of wealth. Everyone still agrees on that. Now, how you get that wealth, whether you're playing a casino of obtaining wealth from the federal government because you're a member of a racial minority or a sexual minority or whatever, or you're trying to get wealth from your side hustle that you're required to have so that you can make your mortgage payment, whatever it is that the casino dominates modern American life. The father of the casino is what we're going to call the counting house. And the counting house is not absent from the other colonies, but it is dominant in New Netherland and in its capital, New Amsterdam, now called New York, in a way that it is not in any other colony. So if you take, for instance, the Spanish colonization attempts, they're 
honestly never very profitable despite the dreams of gold mining. And in fact, in Zacatecas, their success at mining, nevertheless, it does not produce wealth significant enough to affect Arizona or Alta California or other places that would become part of the United States. In New England, they really don't have a local source of wealth, which will prove to be to the benefit of that covenant people because it means that they will, to a much larger degree than Virginia, for example, be left alone. The Virginians do not find the mines that they had first searched for and the gold that they had sought, but they do find in tobacco something like a green source of gold. And for a while, they profit enormously. They will be sucked into an unending debt cycle relative to England because of their plantation economy that they and Maryland especially focus on. In the case of New Netherland, they have a variety of sources of great wealth. And that's not only going to be the beginning of their attempts, as colonization efforts so often were and are, both in American history, but also in ancient history. The Greeks did not go to southern Italy looking for something other than to be wealthier than they were in the homeland. But it's going to remain, wealth is going to remain, the pursuit of wealth is going to remain an absolute and constant focus for the people that both run New Netherland and also the people who live there. And that's really the crucial difference is that when the people from both far away and locally are setting wealth as their highest goal, then that will create the set of political and social and religious conditions that we're going to describe today. So we're going to put the counting house, the place where merchants reckon up accounts in uh, a seaport as the father, or if you want, the grandfather of the casino. Now, the founding of New Netherland in the very beginning of the 17th century with the exploration first of the Englishmen in Dutch employ, Henry Hudson, namesake of Hudson Bay and the Hudson River, that exploration does not lead anywhere for several decades. And that's also a common thing that you get in most colonies development is that there's a period of discovery with a more or less large delay before colonization, that people will often find something, but very rarely immediately exploit what they found or look more into even what they found. After 1609, there's a period where the Dutch focus much more extensively on what they call the East Indies than what they're going to call, meaning almost the entire New World, prospectively, the West Indies. And that's because there is known wealth in the East Indies. So this is what we might call Southeast Asia, right? And in the East Indies, they're looking for spices. And it's known that if you carry those spices all the way back to Europe, you will be wealthy in, the, in that carry trade. So there are lots of East India companies, including the English East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, and there's a French East India Company that are engaged in that trade. They're all going there. They're all looking for things. This will lead to a much longer lasting Dutch colonial project in Indonesia or Batavia, as they're going to call parts of it. So that's what they're doing. That's what they're focusing on. They've also got an ongoing war for their not just de facto, but de jure 
internationally recognized independence from Spain or the Habsburg Empire going on in the very early 17th century. So they've got a lot on their plate. They don't have an enormous population. And so they also don't have the kind of human pressure to leave that you're going to get in England that's going to end up populating not just Virginia, but especially New England. The Dutch also have at home a policy of religious, or if you want to put it this more, much more broadly, ideological tolerance that allows people to live together as long as they're making money. <laughs> so if that doesn't sound familiar, I, I don't know what does. So in, in the Netherlands itself, you've got people who are Mennonite. You've got people who are Jewish. You've got people who are proto-Unitarians, then called Socinians. You've also got, and at a, the level of state sponsorship, you've got a Calvinist church that is trying to suss out what it means by its Calvinism. So the Synod of Dort, which is going to make its resolutions in 1610, is figuring out what the state is officially sponsoring. But, the, but sponsorship does not mean exclusivity in the Dutch case. So you can go there and you can think other things if you like. This is part of the reason, in addition to historic connections to the parts of England that the Puritans largely hail from, this is part of the reason that a lot of the folks who are going to end up in Plymouth Colony, end up on the Mayflower and, and ships that came after it, will spend some time in the Netherlands because you can go to the Netherlands and be not anything you want to be, but, but close. So the Netherlands are a place that doesn't have a, an enormous native population of Dutchmen. It's also a place of tolerance, and it's also held together by the making of money, especially by commerce, meaning moving things back and forth across borders and from faraway places. Because at its size and with its topography, the Netherlands is never going to have tons of coal mining on its own or tons of, it now does have farming, but that's a modern miracle, technological miracle. So the Dutch are going to make their money by carrying things to and from other places, shipping things. This is all going to mean that they're going to have, for their size, an astoundingly capable navy. And that's what's going to push them into what we would now call America, what they're going to call the West Indies, at the instigation of a desire to make more money. So as there was an East India Company, somewhat later on, there becomes a Dutch West India Company. This is a commercial venture, and it's entered into in a corporate way by various towns with the town councils themselves behaving sort of like corporate shareholders. And the size of your town is going to govern how many shares you have. So Amsterdam, the, the city of Amsterdam, will end up with more shares than anyone else in the Dutch West India Company, which means that the city council of Amsterdam will end up with de facto political control over what will come to be called when it begins to be settled in the 1620s in a very small way, New Netherland. Now, New Netherland is something, and this is always helpful to remember when you're thinking about history, New Netherland is something that is really based on rivers. It's not based on the extent of land that we now think of as New York or Connecticut or Long Island or northern New Jersey. When you think about 
human beings really before railroads, you should probably think first about where the water is and then worry about everything else because water is what leads you to where people are. So New Netherland is first going to have a, a fort called Fort Orange near what is now Albany, New York, and then a Fort Nassau, which is near what is now Manhattan, which is on Manhattan Island. And those places are going to be places of, first of all, military significance. So before you can have anything else, you need to have some kind of ability to project force. So you say, okay, well, how is money involved here? Well, once you have those forts, you can have places that Indians can come into and out of and bring you things that you can ship back to the Netherlands. And the thing that you can ship back to the Netherlands from the Hudson River Valley, and then somewhat later, but less successfully, the Connecticut River Valley, where they're going to found something called Fort Good Hope on the site of what is now Hartford, Connecticut, it are beaver pelts. Okay, So this sounds strange. Maybe we're not necessarily wearing furs all the time ourselves, but it involves the capacity to make money in large quantities. Because what's going to happen is you have a demand for furs in Europe, and now you have a source for meeting that demand that blows everything else out of the water. So rather than sourcing your furs from Russia or from Scandinavia or wherever else you may still be able to obtain them in Northern Europe, you've got access to the Northeastern, what are now the Northeastern United States, that is unparalleled and you're the first ones there. So what's going to happen, first of all, is that you're going to staff these forts in a very small way, but you're going to create alliances with the various Indian tribes in the area, and they're going to bring you pelts of beaver, of fisher, of marten, of lots of animals that would be desirable, and then you're going to give them trade goods. All of that is going to wind up with you putting those pelts on ships and the ships going back to Europe. And in Europe, you're going to sell at an incredible profit with seemingly limitless supply. That's the idea. That works for a while until your land is threatened by somebody that could actually do something about it. So the Dutch are not really going to try to populate their own colony for roughly 20 years until they feel a threat from the encroachment of what is coming to be called New England, or what is was sometimes called even by the colonists then, especially from Massachusetts Bay, but increasingly they just called it the colony of Boston. <laughs> and Boston will become so significant that the French will create maps of New England and they'll just label it all Boston. So once Boston, you know, begins to encroach. And particularly, you start to get English settlers in two places that the, the Dutch had assumed were their places. And those are what is now Connecticut and what is now Long Island on the eastern, far eastern end of Long Island. And in the Connecticut River Valley, you get Puritan colonists, English-speaking colonists who are coming into the land. And they're coming in in family groups. Now, that's going to be really significant because the Dutch are going to struggle to get family groups for a very long time. And then the terms on which they get them, we'll see a little bit later on in this hour, are not going to be happy for the vast majority of people. 
The English have family groups, so they tend to settle and stay. And when the family groups settle and stay, they don't want to become Dutch. In fact, some of them left the Netherlands and came to New England in order precisely so that their children would not be Dutch. So they share a religion here, and this is an important point, is that the fact that they share very broadly a commitment to Calvinist Protestant Christianity doesn't matter a whole lot. It's going to enable certain kinds of alliances that would not exist and did not exist, for instance, between French Roman Catholics and English Protestants, but it does not get rid of conflict, right? The well-being of the new of New Netherland is not dependent on the fact of having enough Calvinists just of, you know, whatever ethnicity or nation. So this is where when you're thinking about the the peace or the well-being or the well-ordered running of a commonwealth of a group of human beings and some kind of polity, having the same religion is not sufficient for the good government of that place. Religious agreement has is one facet of human life under the sun. So what's going to happen is that you get increasing tension because the English are not there just to make money. They're there generally to propagate themselves, right? Think about that phrase that you get later on in the American founding documents, for ourselves and our posterity, right? So when you have that concept that something is happening because, not just because it's right, so that's why we're going to have this certain kind of a reformed church government, but also because it's going to secure a future for our children, then what you're dealing with is just a different way of looking at life than someone who is simply there to make money. And the Dutch are largely there to make money. So they begin to try to bring people from the Netherlands proper in order to counteract the weight of English settlement. And a lot of the places that they do settle, not so far east on Long Island and not so far east that they actually win in the Connecticut River Valley. So that's going to be abandoned by them. But up and down the Hudson River Valley and in what are now the five boroughs of New York City, which are not that old, that's 1898, that that all comes together. Those places are largely going to be settled in the 16, late 1620s and throughout the 1630s and into the 1640s. You get places like Staten Island and Brooklyn. These are all different villages at the time, Flatbush, what are now neighborhoods within boroughs of New York City are all founded around these times, flushing. A lot of the what look like strange words in English make a little bit more sense in Dutch. Those places are all settled to counteract the fact of English settlement. The problem is the Dutch West India Company doesn't care very much who's there. So although New England is very English, and Virginia is staffed by lots and lots and lots of Englishmen. New, the New, New Netherlands is not particularly Netherlandish. <laughs> okay, it's not very Dutch. The, the best demographic estimates that historians have for the New Netherlands is that it only is ever, ethnically speaking, about 50% Dutch. Now, everyone who runs everything is Dutch. So that's helpful to know, or they are sufficiently Dutchified, like Peter Minuit, who has a French last name, that it doesn't matter that his father 
fled to the Netherlands from France in order to be Protestant. But it never gets terribly Dutch in the way that other colonies are English. So what does that look like or what does that mean? It means that roughly 50% of people are something else. Now, what are all those something else? Most of them are going to be people who have been in the Netherlands for a relatively small amount of time, a lot of them being refugees. Among those are going to be most of the people who are going to be part of what is therefore called the Dutch Lutheran Church in New Amsterdam, which is founded later on, a couple of decades after the initial settlement of New Amsterdam. But the people in the Dutch Lutheran Church, although things are happening in Dutch because Dutch is the language that everyone has in common, are probably not themselves terribly Dutch. They're going to be refugees from parts of Germany affected by the Thirty Years' War, or they'll be sailors brought from Scandinavia to staff Dutch ships who are themselves ethnically Swedish or Finnish or Norwegian or Danish, and then brought to New Amsterdam to work on the docks there or on the ships that carry things back and forth from New Amsterdam to Old Amsterdam or, or wherever they might go. So the fact that you have a Lutheran church in what's ostensibly a state-sponsored Dutch Reformed colony is because you have an ethnic variety that is completely unmatched anywhere else in what will become the 13 colonies. That ethnic variety is going to lead their politics to function a lot more erratically than certain other colonies. There are rebellions and severe disagreements in the other colonies internally, but usually it's the colony more or less united against the crown at various points that we'll talk about as we talk more about colonial history. In the New Netherlands, you have, much like our own time and place, a great deal of political apathy from people who are just there to make money. <laughs> and so the swings in policy that you get in the history of New Netherland are going to be driven not so much by the population because the population doesn't have too much in common with each other. The population is spread out up and down the Hudson River Valley, at one point in the Delaware River Valley, much farther south. But by the time anything is about to change in a radical way by the early 1660s, the population is concentrated more or less from what's now Albany south down to what's now New York City, and then extending into northern New Jersey and onto Long Island. That population, while not necessarily ethnically Dutch, speaks Dutch, that population is also overwhelmingly, and this is difficult for a lot of people to imagine, that population is overwhelmingly rural. So not only is the island of Manhattan rural, largely, but also obviously Long Island and Staten Island and northern New Jersey and everything up and down the Hudson River Valley. And it's rural because it's organized in a certain way that's going to be really important for a lot of American history after this. And it's how the Dutch figured out how to get anybody to go over out of their relatively small population, whether ethnically Dutch or not, that was living in the Netherlands at the time. If you can't get people to go somewhere voluntarily because they don't have any kind of internal push 
similar to the England New Covenant or the New England Covenant sense of life that we saw driving Puritans and other separatists into New England in order to govern themselves in a way they saw fit, then what you have to do is offer inducements. So New Netherland is going to be populated by virtue of financial gain. And the system works this way, and it's very different from the Presidio and the mission system that the Spanish use, and it's very different from the covenant system that's going to effectively people all of New England as well as most of the rest of the northern United States over the next 150 years, just moving out of the initial New English population. It's not going to really spread anywhere else but it will be replicated everywhere that financial gain is going to dominate settlement. And it works this way, and it's called patroonship. Now, that's a strange term. That's why we chose counting house. But let's explain patroonship so we understand how this goes. If you're not in one of the relatively small villages, especially the growing village of New Amsterdam, bounded on its north by Wall Street, where there's a wall to protect you from the Indians, that's why it's called Wall Street, then what you're going to do is you're going to make money basically by being a real estate investor. Patroon is a name for a lord. Maybe you can hear the word patron inside of it. But what a patroon does is that he accepts for the price of getting a very, very large estate, he accepts the responsibility to people it with settlers, with farmers. And he's going to find those people in various places. But when he finds them, they're going to constitute a society all to their own. So for example, Rensselaerswick, which is one of the biggest and one of the relatively earliest patroonships, is going to occupy land prospectively from the Hudson River east to wherever Massachusetts starts in someone's mind at that time, maybe the Connecticut River Valley in many people's understanding. And what's going to happen is that he's going to live on a manor and there will be lots of other farmers and they won't quite be indentured servants like we saw in Virginia, but also such as existed in New England. So they won't be white colonists who after a certain period of time are free and they won't really be slaves exactly. There is slavery in New Netherland and the Dutch are pretty active and we'll talk about that shortly. The Dutch and particularly Sephardic Jews who live in the Netherlands are very active in the slave trade with Africa. They're not really slaves and they're not missions exactly because you don't have to be Dutch reformed to live on one of these patroonships. You can even have your own sort of a church if you want and they're not going to try to Christianize the Indians as the Spanish did in their way and the English did in their way. Instead, you need to be there. And what you absolutely have to do is you have to pay rent. So the land will never be quite your own because you are a permanent renter. It's not necessarily that you own nothing and you'll be happy. <laughs> But it's a lot closer than anything else in colonial history. This will make the patroons extremely wealthy. And a lot of the places in the Hudson River Valley from Staten Island all the way up north are named after these patroons. There's Rensselaer County and there's the Bronx. And there are lots of places named after the men whose ownership constituted what New Netherland became to the extent that it became anything 
And for their part, they did well from it. So what New Netherland will have is a pretty severe class distinction between those who own land and those who do not own land. This is going to be really different from the vision that's going to come out of New England and what will happen despite their own efforts in Virginia, which is the widespread ownership of land by free men. New Netherland will not function that way. Instead, it will develop a commercial heart in New Amsterdam, and the rest of it will remain overwhelmingly rural, with ownership restricted mostly to patroons, most of whom will end up living, at least seasonally, in New Amsterdam, coming to their estates at various times. This is one reason why the concept of aristocracy is one that you are going to find relatively rarely in American history, but which we easily see and talk about today as elites or the ruling class, or we've talked on the show about regime. One reason that you see this relatively rarely in American history is that historically, highly restrictive ownership of land is pretty rare. New Netherland is unusual in the way that they set this up, and in the creation of a firmly elite ruling class that maintains itself over time, and will even bring in new groups where and when they see fit. So for instance, a very prominent New York family, the Livingstons, that's a Scottish name, will become patroons eventually. The patroons will remain overwhelmingly Dutch, but even when New Netherland falls, which we'll talk about later, they will adapt very easily because their wealth insulates them for political change. So they will simply anglicize at that point, and Alexander Hamilton will marry a daughter of one of these families, the Schuylers. So that adaptation is based on the enormous wealth that insulates them from political change, and their relatively low investment, even in a government by people of their own language and nation. They just don't care that much because their life is constituted by their wealth, not by their language or their nation or their religion. The system of patroonships has one exception that will increasingly spread through the 1640s, 1650s, into the early 1660s throughout New Netherland. And that is, that is when and where the Dutch-governed colony allows Englishmen to settle in groups. Now, notice that the Englishmen settle in groups and do not develop a parallel patroon class. So they don't ape the Dutch system of social organization. They come and they settle and they constitute the original population of, for instance, Flushing, what's, in, what's now in Queens, Queensboro in New York City. They also settle Newark, New Jersey, now called Newark, right? As they settle Newark, Delaware, still called Newark. These are all places settled by Puritans, and what they do when they go there, as they settle most of Long Island as well, is that they settle in self-governing groups just like they do in New England. They constitute a parallel society. They don't really get along with the Dutch, but they also don't at this point and at low population density need to get along with them. They constitute, when in the modern day we say that diversity is our strength, I never quite know what that means, but let's say this about diversity is that it's highly tolerable at low population density. 
as in nature, where it's okay to have completely different tree species as long as they can all flourish at different altitudes and at different levels of rainfall, maybe within a 50 square mile area, you can handle enormous human diversity as long as population is very, very, very low. It's when we have to be with each other that the fact that we don't agree with each other or aren't like each other or find each other intolerable or incomprehensible becomes actually difficult. And that's precisely the place and time where, and this might be why the mantra is repeated more and more and more as our population grows and the population becomes more urbanized, why as a mantra, our current regime has to say diversity is our strength, diversity is our strength, diversity is our strength, precisely because we know it's not working. Give you an example from the English, English diversity actually impacting New Netherland. Throughout the history of Flushing, New York, there is a problem that the English brought with them from England and also from New England, and that is that the English don't agree on whether being Quaker is legal. The Quakers are very strange. We can talk about that more when we talk about the history of the colony of Pennsylvania, but they are strange in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be excluded from New Netherland. New Netherland had accommodated already a Jewish population that has no parallel in any other colony. So are the Quakers that different from Jews as far as religious practice? I guess they gather on a different day of the week, but they're also not baptized. What's really the difference? Peter Stuyvesant, one of the governors general of New Netherland, decides, however, that Quakerism, and ironically, he doesn't say this about Jews, that Quakerism is a problem and cannot be permitted in New Netherland. One of the founding documents, therefore, of the history of what's going to be called religious freedom or religious liberty in America is what's called the Flushing Remonstrance. And you can go look that up for yourself. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes for today. But if you look it up, it is about the right of people to worship according to the dictates of conscience and the impossibility of government regulating these things in a way that was traditional for all European societies and was being done in Virginia and New England and lots of other places. The significance of the Flushing Remonstrance, though, is that it's a problem that's brought in by bringing in Englishmen (laughs) because very few people in the world – are Quakers at that point who are not also Englishmen or at least Britons, you might say, with some lowland Scotsman mixed in there. Once you've brought in the English, you've also imported English religious controversies that the Dutch do not have or do not handle in the same way or don't have at the same scale, so it doesn't matter that much. But now you've got Quakers who want to be Quakers, and Peter Stuyvesant thinks that that's against the Reformed religion, and and it is. And so he doesn't want to tolerate it. Now, men before him and men after him will tolerate it. This is where you can see something, too, when the getting of wealth dominates a polity, is that all of our convictions just matter so much less relative to the getting of wealth. If something is impeding the getting of wealth, then it will probably disappear before the power of that ruling idea, controlling idea that we need to make more money. Everything else will dissolve. This may explain the incongruity or the oddness of a fairly large 
segment of New Amsterdam's merchant population, and that is a colony of Sephardic Jews. We've explained before, but let's just reiterate before what Sephardic means. It's from the Hebrew word sefarad, which is for roughly, we think, a biblical concept of the Iberian Peninsula. So Jews originating in the Iberian Peninsula, where they had flourished, especially under Islamic rule as a population, sort of a upper middle class population, higher in status than, than Christians, lower in status than Muslims, had flourished in the Middle Ages. That Sephardic population is going to be instrumental to the growing sea empire and sea engagements to some degree of Spain, but especially of Portugal, as Portugal develops its own functional independence from the rest of the Iberian Peninsula as a sea power in the 1400s and 1500s. And what Sephardic Jews will especially engage in, disproportionate to their population, are two professions. One is as uh, doctors, and the second is as slave traders. So if you look, if somebody says, well, this Portuguese ship took this many slaves from here in West Africa and brought them to Brazil, and we've talked before about the size of the slave trade, how much larger both absolutely and relatively it is from West Africa to South America than from West Africa to North America. Nonetheless, that's going to be dominated absolutely and relatively by Sephardic Jews. In the 1650s, those folks are going to be kicked out of Brazil by a renaissance Catholic set of convictions on the part of both Portuguese and also a French colony that is there at the time. The French have a very wide array of colonial projects, most of which seem very obscure, but at the time there was something down there. They're going to take they're going to take refuge in New Amsterdam. And the reason they're going to do that is because you can still conduct a triangular slave trade with other goods being shipped at other times between Europe, the Americas, and Africa from New Amsterdam. So they're setting themselves back up in business rather than letting themselves completely be extinguished or having to find another place to go or going back to the Netherlands where many of them had originally fled in the 1500s because it was a place you could go without fear of Spanish or Portuguese jurisdiction since the Dutch are fighting a long war against the Habsburgs and their allies. So they don't want to give up altogether on their trade, so they go to New Amsterdam. At first, they have some difficulty settling there in the 1650s. I, I want to say off the top of my head, this is 1652 that they first settle there but it's called the, the Jewish Mayflower, the ship that they come in on. After they get purchase and they're able to purchase some land, collectively pooling their assets to get some land, they're going to set themselves back up in trade. So they're going to be traders. And what they're doing there is making money, pouring it back into their community, founding the first synagogue in America, not the, not the oldest building that's, I believe, in Rhode Island now, but the first organized synagogue. And what they're going to do is occupy a niche as traders. Now, there's a misnomer here, and this has to do with the vast difference between 
Jewish history intended for Jews to read versus Jewish history intended for Gentiles to read, the latter being highly simplified and usually organized around a victim narrative, is that when you read Jewish history for Jews to read, so uh, written by Jews and published by, say, Jewish Publication Society, Philadelphia or something, you just get a different story. And the story that you get is not a victim story, like, oh, we were forced into this. It was, this is what we chose to do because it was lucrative and because it was good for us. So it's not that anyone really particularly had much of a problem with a slave trade. There were slaves of all kinds and colors really moving around the world at this time with probably the world's biggest slave trade being out of Africa into the Arab world, but also still involving kidnapping of various whites and enslavement of them in the Arab world. So the Arabs are probably the world's biggest holders of slaves, if you want to think of it that way. The slave trade is not terribly unique at this time, and almost basically nobody, not even the Quakers, has a problem with it in the 1650s. But the slave trade is highly lucrative, and so it builds fortunes. The difference between the Jews and, say, the ruling Dutch in New Netherland is that the Jews do not divide themselves up according to class the way the Dutch do. So whereas an upper-class Dutchman, a patroon, might sympathize with and work with a Jew politically against the interests of another Dutchman who goes to the same Dutch Reformed Church, who is his renter, the Jew doesn't do that because the Jews are unified in class, at least at the beginning. Now, they won't be later on when you have other waves of Jewish immigration, and that is its own story to be told for the 19th and particularly for the 20th century. But the Sephardic Jews who settle in New Netherland do not divide themselves up in the way that the Dutch do, and that leads to greater long-term solidarity of Sephardic Jews. How could they be there? <laughs> okay, in a, in a place where maybe we're not, we don't even tolerate Quakers who are at least certainly in the 17th century still vaguely Christian. The reason they can be there is because they, they, they make money, and we can make money with them. So part of the diversity of New Netherland is because of who gets shipped from the old country, the Netherlands, which is already sort of a collecting point for refugees of various kinds. But it's also because the glue holding New Netherland together is not religion, as in New England. It's not a certain social vision, as in Virginia, it's not a combination military-religious project, as in New Spain. It is simply the fact that we're all making money together. Now, that glue will also be its solvent as New Netherland begins to fall apart. If you're going to treat everything as a way to make money, then if you find out that you can make money under a completely different regime, that's what you're going to do. New Netherland, New Netherland commands, therefore, very low loyalty. That would have been fine if there had been no threats to it, military, political, religious, whatever else. The problem was that there were threats of all kinds to its existence. And the largest threat is a series of wars, almost entirely unknown in America, although very much affecting the shape of modern America but probably also largely unknown even today in the United Kingdom or the Netherlands, called the Anglo-Dutch Wars. These run throughout the 17th century, and they are really about who will be the preeminent power in Northern Europe 
as well as, and probably more importantly, the preeminent naval power throughout the world. They are largely, just in sheer military terms, largely naval wars. They do have some land component, but they're largely naval wars. And their various outcomes are going to be the reason that New Amsterdam will turn into New York as of the 1660s, and then in the 1670s, back to New Amsterdam for two years, and then be handed back over as New York. Now, why does all this happen? The Anglo-Dutch Wars have their own causes and involve dynastic drama that will eventually be resolved by the Dutch William coming to become a king with his wife Mary in 1688 at the Glorious Revolution in England that will secure the throne for Protestantism and also the supremacy of parliament. But the effect on New Amsterdam is that when you are a place for people to make money, nobody cares that much about you. So not only does it have a population that when there's an Anglo-Dutch war, there are plenty of Anglos who want the other side to win. (laughs) They don't want New Amsterdam to become more Dutch or Europe to become more dominated by the Dutch. So if there's an Anglo-Dutch war, they're going to help the Anglos, even if that is, technically speaking, treason. But it's also because the people back home who control New Netherland don't care that much about what happens to it. It was a money-making venture. And after the fur trade, let's not say collapsed so much as declined severely, the way that money is made is largely through rents and sales. And you can rent or sell lots of things in lots of places. You don't need to keep doing that in the Hudson River Valley necessarily or in Bergen County, New Jersey. So what happens is that even when the Dutch recapture what had begun to be called New York after the king's brother, the Duke of York, as of 1664, when that was recaptured in 1672 by the Dutch, it was renamed and lots of things were renamed and the government was completely replaced with Dutchmen after the Englishmen having been there for close to a decade. And that lasted for two years. So for two years, what was probably ethnically the majority population, and at least religiously the majority were Reformed Protestants, including Frenchmen, Huguenots, and including some Germans who were some of them Reformed and some of them Lutheran. And there were plenty of people who should have sympathized more with the Dutch. But even when the Dutch retook the place, they were largely indifferent. And the Sephardic Jews don't care. They're there to make money. And the Anglos in Long Island and New Jersey and and even parts of the Hudson River Valley don't care. They, They probably want English government back. And the patroons don't care because what really matters for the patroon is whether his rent comes in. It's not whether he has to speak English or Dutch when he goes to New Amsterdam for the social season. But What's really sad, if you are one of the Dutchmen who died either defending New Amsterdam or taking New York and trying to turn it back into New Amsterdam, is that the people back home, the Dutch West India Company and the Dutch government on top of that corporation, they don't really care. Because the thing about the counting house is that it makes you care about nothing else. It is 
amazing in its power that way. The men who staffed the Presidios ended up caring about other things besides Spanish military power, and the friars who staffed the missions, they cared about lots of things and had lots of interests. In addition to simply the catechization of the mission Indians, they also started the wine industry in Arizona and California. And the covenant people of New England cared about all sorts of things, had an enormous curiosity about even the whole rest of the world almost immediately, despite some of their commercial resemblances to New Amsterdam. But New Amsterdam, nobody particularly cared about a whole lot of anything except making money finally. So what happens in 1674 is that the Dutch West India Company, as a matter of settling this third Anglo-Dutch war, says, you can just have it. (laughs) You can just, just take it. It doesn't matter that much. What that means is that other treaties that had, for instance, secured the Hudson River Valley for the Dutch, the Treaty of Hartford in 1650, for example, those are dissolved by indifference. Because neither in the old country, where there's better money to be made in other places, particularly in the East Indies, nor in the New World, where money can still be made even if the flag has changed, There was no rebellion. There was no, the Dutch population of the Mohawk River Valley did not rise up and say, no, we will stubbornly remain Dutch and we will never submit to an English yoke of tyranny. Nobody cared. This is what's interesting about New Amsterdam is that it is a city that grows and grows and grows with a population certainly more diverse and unusual and prosperous, even than Philadelphia, which will become and remain for some time the largest city in America, and has a population vastly different than the population of New England. But it all holds together without rebellion in a way that is not true in Pennsylvania, as we'll see, and not true in New England, and and not true in Virginia with Bacon's Rebellion a population that is unified by a combination of indifference and separation. Indifference to political and religious change outside of themselves. So the Sephardic Jews can still be Sephardic Jews, and the French Reformed people in New Paltz, New York, can still be Huguenots, and the Dutch can still be Dutch. The irony here is that what happens when the counting house dominates Everything is that even the one who founded the counting house begins to himself become the object of mockery when the regime changes. The somewhat satirical Knickerbocker's History of New York from 1805, written by Washington Irving, a man who is not Dutch, but told you the story, certain stories that are also not Dutch about Dutchmen, like the story of Rip Van Winkle. In Knickerbocker's History of New York, one of the things that you'll notice is how often Dutch people become the object of mockery. (laughs) Diedrich Knickerbocker himself is a humorous character. He's silly. And his history of New York is not a glorious history. There's a certain inferiority complex in early New York down to the early 19th century about how 
inglorious their history actually is, despite their economic importance, which will be eventually secured by the building of the Erie Canal, the completion in 1825, is that compared to New England, there just aren't heroes. No one was ferociously defending his family from Indian attacks because (laughs) there weren't Indian attacks because everyone was making money. There isn't a unified sense of what a a name sounds like from New York. So Diedrich Knickerbocker is a Dutch name, but Solis Cohen is a Sephardic Jewish name. And then there are Anglo names in there. And the story of Sleepy Hollow is partly about a a New Englander, Ichabod Crane. That's a recognizable New England name coming into New York as the Yankees would swarm into New York State, particularly after our revolution. But New York just has nothing to define it. Does any of this sound familiar? It's because the history of early New York really is the pattern for the history of what becomes the United States of America. It becomes an enormous market, and anyone can come in. So... New York is going to contain all sorts of people and all sorts of projects. New York will also, therefore, in our revolutionary history, be decidedly indifferent, mostly, but divided too. Indifferent because its population is proportionally, compared to New England, certainly, but Virginia and North Carolina just doesn't sign up. And those who do sign up are disproportionately likely to be loyalists because they're doing well under British government. They're making money under British government. And New York Harbor is such a great place to have a harbor. Why why would you change? And so New York throughout the revolution lives peacefully under British occupation with American soldiers in prison ships rotting in the harbor the men and the ships sitting there rotting, the men dying, and life going on pretty much as usual in what is now called New York, what used to be called New Amsterdam. That indifference is all enabled by the counting house. Because what you really care about, whether you're a Schuyler or a Rensselaer or a Livingston or a Ten Bronck, from whom we get the Bronx, is money. And if you're making it, then not a whole lot else matters. That's going to create several results that we want to come back to as we wrap up here that I think will be helpful for understanding the power of the counting house, especially as the power of New York, not necessarily its coherence, (laughs) but its power grows over American history. And as that power gets replicated time and time and time again in American history is the power that mammon has and and the kind of society that mammon builds. Because this is going to be decisive for America in a way that the Covenant family and certainly the Presidio and other concepts that we'll use as we go along generalizing, those are going to have much less power. And hopefully this will explain why, for instance, we have a uniparty in modern America, obviously dominated by donors and money. So here are several things that Mammon shapes when he shapes a society that we see in the history of early New York. You have enormous division of all kinds relative to other colonies, ethnic, 
religious division, social division, class division, even within people who share an ethnicity and a religion, is that they get divided by class so that if I'm of an upper class, I'm going to agree with other people who make the same amount of money that I do, not with people who are more like me in other ways determined by birth and not by money. You're also going to get ongoing political irreconcilability because Quakers simply don't want the same kind of society that Puritans do, let alone that the Dutch do. So the Dutch who are not patroons will eventually be consigned to this Mohawk River Valley, the Schoharie River Valley, which they'll share with Palatine Germans. And in those places, as well as in Bergen County, New Jersey, they will become obscure rural populations without control. Having come as conquerors and rulers, they end up as curiosities. And their vision of what matters will only matter to the degree that they partake of the counting house. So Stephen Van Rensselaer's money is going to matter. There's, I think, maybe four of, at least four Stephen Van Rensselaer's. His money, their money, is going to matter a lot more than anything else. So there is a Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute that still matters in New York State as well as in the United States. But there is not a similar institution founded by those lowly Dutch farmers that still matters. And what will generally happen is that the money that governs the institutions that they do care about will eventually change those institutions. So if once the Dutch Reformed Church, its successor from colonial days now being called the Reformed Church in America, was very, very conservative and very, very Calvinistic, it is now neither, and that has been dissolved by money. What you'll also get, what Mammon will also create, is a general sense of paralysis above a certain level. And that's something that I hear so often from listeners. I repeat it. I'm going to say it again simply because you tell me this all the time, is that you feel paralyzed when you consider things above a certain level. That is not a natural, that is not a necessary way that your society has to be composed. It's a function of mammon's domination of your society that you feel completely paralyzed. The fact that you don't have a lot of money or have insufficient money to accomplish political goals does not mean that your political ideas or your religious ideas are illegitimate or meaningless or pointless. It means that you need to work harder to consolidate the things, in this case especially money, that will help you achieve political goals in the system we currently have. But your paralysis is the same paralysis that any renter on any one of the patroonships would feel. It wasn't that his ideas were illegitimate or that it's a at least debatable and reasonable point that the one who works the land should get some benefit from the work that he does, independent of whether the patroon wants to be slightly wealthier than he was last year. Your sense of paralysis is driven by the fact that money is driving everything. That's why you feel paralyzed. That's why you feel impotent. Money does that to people because it always pools. And if you don't happen to own one of those pools, then you feel like you have nothing. That's a sense of paralysis that people don't have, for example, in colonial New England, because if they get kicked out of one place, they can go somewhere else and found the same mutually dependent social structure that you get in town after town after town after town, including in the towns that they found in what was supposed to be a Dutch colony. They're not paralyzed because they're not shaping their entire societal fabric around money. 
And the last shape that you get is human expendability. Let's contrast this, for example, with the popularity of captive narratives in early New England. The reason that some of the best-selling books in the history of New England were captive narratives is because the idea of being taken away by a society that is non-English and pagan is so terrifying and exotic and interesting and that your society will do anything to get you back. So it's not based as we, we base our desire to bring soldiers home or as we consecrate in the tomb of the unknown soldier in modern America the idea that everyone comes home. That idea is present in early New England because there is a home to come to, a home where there are other people like you, other people with you, other people who are covenanted in the same way. So if Mary Rowlandson is kidnapped or someone else is taken captive in an Indian war, getting him back and what happened to him when he wasn't home matters tremendously. There is, therefore, a home. It's not like that in New Netherland. It's not just that they have different relationships with the also different Indian tribes that populate the area and that the Iroquois have, as we'll talk about later on in the series, enormous control over what's now central and western New York that's very different from anything else in the Northeast among the Indian tribes. It's also that when everyone is different from each other, no sense of home is the same as it would be in a very different society. And even if you're like me, if you don't make the same money that I do, then I just don't care in the same way. It's not that the other colonies were in any way militantly egalitarian or that they had no differences of wealth. Certainly Virginia had differences of wealth. And where they do, you see something like what you get in early New York, and that is that people are expendable because they don't matter like money does. They just don't. And if they go away and I can still make money, then I just don't care in the same way because the things that are driving my life do not have to do with them. They have to do with my money. That indifference is driven by the fact that the counting house matters more than anything. And as long as that's functioning, the other things do not matter. The welfare of the churches, the welfare of the people, the welfare of the farmers do not matter in the same way because mammon is driving it all. Now, if that's true, if any of what I've said in this hour is true, then we have to consider how mammon could be dethroned because mammon was truly whoever the governor general was. And despite the fact that the monarchy of the Netherlands was never quite the same thing as other monarchies, the actual king of New Netherland was mammon. And he caused there not to be a New Netherland anymore, but for there to become a New York which would become fabulously wealthy and just as strange <laughs> with just as much irreconcilability and just as much difficulty and just as much incoherence as there is now. As I record this 
today, what's happening in the state of New York is that the city of New York is shipping refugees who are coming from our uncontrolled southern border, largely from all over the world, and not just from Central America. And what the mayor of New York is now doing is he's shipping those refugees to largely rural counties and just dropping them off. Now, there are suits and countersuits in court, and we'll see how this all plays out. But that's a good way to think about what dominates because those guys are those guys are not being shipped elsewhere because the the bleeding hearts in New York City want them to be shipped elsewhere or think that Oneida County or Cattaraugus County are going to take such good care of them or or want them there. They're being shipped there because they recognize that they're almost sort of a punishment in themselves and how much care will have to be taken and how many problems there will be because they don't fit into Oneida or Cattaraugus, but also because they're expendable, those guys, whoever they are. And they're probably largely guys. They're expendable. They're here for money. We're here for money. Let's move them somewhere else because we don't have enough money. They don't belong anywhere. And no one's going to try to take them home because we're told that they're trying to find a new home. But what's really true is that they're expendable and that they cost too much. And maybe it would even cost too much. I don't know. Or maybe they wouldn't help bring down wages if we took them back to their homes. What's home anyway? We're just here to make money. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.com.
www.northidaho.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.